King Charles II was in debt. Admiral Penn, a staunch royalist in the Civil War, had used his personal wealth to rebuild the navy after the Restoration, and the king owed him £16,000, about £3 million in today's money. Fate intervened before Charles could repay. The admiral died. But there was a son, William, a troublemaker who'd been in and out of prison for the sin of being a Quaker, illegal, in 17th century England. William saw an opportunity. He went to the king and asked him to honour the debt to his father, not with money, but with the gift of a tranche of land across the Atlantic, in America. In 1681, Charles gave him 45,000 square miles of real estate west of the Delaware River, and William set sail to build what he called a holy experiment, where Quaker ideals could be put into practice without the threat of persecution. He wanted to name the colony Sylvania, Latin for woodland, after the vast forests that covered his new home. But the king insisted on a prefix to pay tribute to the late admiral, his surname, and so Penn, Sylvania, was born. 340 years later, William Penn's old home is the site of one of the tightest Senate races of the 2022 midterm elections. With 193 days to go, I'm John Priddo and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why is the Pennsylvania Senate race so fascinating? A celebrity doctor and a hedge fund manager, a neck and neck. On the other side, an oddball giant with man of the people appeal is pulling ahead of a candidate who seems like he was made in a factory by establishment Democrats. The race for Pennsylvania's open Senate seat is wild, and between now and November, we'll be regularly checking in. The first major milestone, the primaries, is a few weeks away. What can the Pennsylvania Senate race tell us about the future direction of American politics? With me to make sense of Pennsylvania's Senate race are Idris Kaloun, The Economist Washington correspondent, and Charlotte Howard, the New York bureau chief. Charlotte, happy birthday. How are you doing? I am well. Happy birthday to you. Well, thank you so much. Our regular listeners will know this, but we discovered while recording the podcast last year that Charlotte and I share a birthday, and John Fadsman's birthday is the day before. Idris is in November, so that evens things out a little bit. Yeah, I'm not in the club, but uh, <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much. Charlotte, what's going on in New York at the moment? Well, I'm thrilled to have Idris in town. It's nice to be able to record with him, so it's nice to be able to be with colleagues again at long last. Idris, how's New York treating you? Yeah, no complaints. Greatest city on earth. We're going to get some letters from Philadelphia. <laughs> We're going to be talking a fair bit about the midterms over the next few months. We thought an interesting way to do that was to pick one race and check back on it regularly. So we've picked Pennsylvania. And in this episode, you'll find out why. We will, of course, be talking about other key races in other bits of the country on the podcast as well. Okay, these midterms, the Senate midterms, are hugely important, right? It, it seems very likely that Republicans are going to win the House. There's a chance that Democrats hold on to the Senate. I 
at the moment assume that they won't and Republicans will win a majority there. But there's, there's, even though the Democrats aren't able to get a lot of legislation through, there's a world of difference between a Senate with a very narrow Democratic majority and a Senate with a Republican majority. Idris, what do you think that would look like in practice, i.e. what's really riding on this election? Well, you know, like you said, the House is very likely to go Republican, and that means that um, it's very unlikely as a result that Biden will achieve very much legislatively in the last two years of his first term. But uh, if Democrats were to lose the Senate, then that would make things even harder for them. Not only would they have to negotiate with Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, but uh, importantly, the Senate is the body that ratifies treaties, that confirms nominees from the president to office, including for the Supreme Court. Um, We saw that McConnell had no compunction in the last two years of Obama's term in basically not considering a Supreme Court nomination. Uh, Something like that, I think, could easily repeat if he were in charge of the chamber. Um, And that would be a pretty big blow to Democrats above and beyond the sort of loss of legislative ability. And Charlotte, why Pennsylvania? Well, Pennsylvania is a really interesting state to follow for a few reasons. But the races in particular, I think, are fascinating, uh, both on the Republican and Democratic side, because in the Republican field, you've seen this dramatic quest for the approval of Donald Trump and Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz, won uh, Trump's endorsement, which was a big deal for him. On the left, there's this question of whether Democrats in trying to win the general, whether they think it's a good play to stick to the middle, to try to present themselves as moderates and pragmatists, or to go for really big ideas the way that you saw the presidential candidates do in 2020 with um, big, really left-leaning ideas. And I think that you see Democrats hewing towards the former path, trying to be at least a bit more pragmatic. But we can get into that discussion more. The other reason people are looking at the Pennsylvania Senate race so closely is just the how vital it is to the Democratic uh, electoral math. So right now there's a 50-50 Senate, which means that if Democrats were to lose a single seat on net, they would lose control of the chamber. There are 35 seats that um, are currently up in the coming election. And uh, there are four Senate races that Democrats have to defend in pretty close territory. They're in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and New Hampshire. If Democrats manage to defend all four, that would obviously be a very good outcome, but it's likely that one of them will go, and they will need to make that up somewhere else. Their best opportunity for doing that is in Pennsylvania, because it would be to replace Pat Toomey, who was an outgoing Republican senator. So if they do lose Pennsylvania, I think it's quite likely that they end up losing control of the whole chamber, and that's why I think there's been so much much attention on it, in addition to the fact that Biden very narrowly won, only by about a percentage point last time. Okay, so before we go any further with this, I thought it was worth taking a look at why it is that Pennsylvania is such a purple state. Life. The video opens with a neat twist. Liberty. The pursuit of happiness. Lifting those famous words from the Declaration of Independence to tempt tourists to visit the state where it was signed. Pennsylvania. No matter who you are, know that in Pennsylvania, happiness is our keystone. But strip away the reference to the founding of the nation, and the state government's marketing campaign falls back on the usual tropes. A generic uplifting soundtrack. Dynamic urban centers. And greater than great outdoors. Impossibly cheerful people having a great time indulging in a variety of pursuits at a ball game, on a roller coaster, fishing... 
hear that. In its short running time, it bombards the viewer with scene after scene after scene of picture postcard idyll. Pennsylvania, pursue your happiness. But in Pennsylvania's case, its diversity is more than bait for tourists. It's the reason this is a swing state. Strike up the music, the band has begun. The Pennsylvania Polka. Pennsylvania is not one state, really. John Mysek is editor-in-chief of the Pennsylvania Capital Star. You know, you have suburban Philadelphia, which is, is its own distinct entity. Um, and hits sort of all the marks that we've come to associate with, you know, sort of modern Democrats. Progressive folks were down there, were college-educated, upper-middle-class families who have traditionally voted Democratic. Everybody has a mania to do the polka from Pennsylvania. And then you venture up into the northern tier. That's kind of the, 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 all the big boxy counties along the top. And, I mean, that's really rural and really conservative and traditionally Republican. Erie might as well be Cleveland um, because it's way up there in the upper left-hand corner of the state. Southwestern Pennsylvania is coal country. Um, You will hear a slight lilt of a southern accent the closer you get to the West Virginia border, which was like blue dog Union Democrat. And that's that cohort we saw swing to Trump in 2016. At the presidential level, Democrats thought they could count on Pennsylvania. It hadn't voted for the Republican candidate since George Bush in 1988. But then, in 2016, its 20 electoral college votes went to Trump. And when it was finally called on November 7th, 2020, four days after the polls had closed, its shift back to blue put Joe Biden over the edge. After a very close race, NBC News now projects that Joe Biden has won the Keystone State, Pennsylvania, and its 20 electoral votes. But down ballot, Pennsylvania has long been more reliably purple. A peculiar phenomenon of switching the affiliation of its governor every eight years ended in 2014, when Democrat Tom Wolfe beat the one-term Republican incumbent. Hi, I'm Tom Wolfe. I'm a Democrat running for governor. I was born and raised in central Pennsylvania. And it's often been represented by a senator from each party in Washington. Even when it had two Republicans for 12 years from 1994, the conservative Rick Santorum and moderate Arlen Specter were on such opposite wings of the party that Specter jumped ship in 2009. Today I have the honor of standing next to the newest Democrat from the state of Pennsylvania. It reflects an independence that has been the hallmark of Arlen Specter's career since the days he arrived in Washington. He has never been in the Senate to fight for any particular party, but rather for the men and women of Pennsylvania who sent him here. If there's any pattern to the jumble of Pennsylvania's electoral history, at the presidential level at least, it's that it picks winners. It's voted for the eventual president all but twice in the past 50 years. As much as any state, it's a microcosm of the entire country. If you can craft a campaign that will win over former steelworkers in the Mon River Valley, the wealthy suburbanites of Montgomery County, and the farming families in the north, then you can probably win nationally. The challenge of the primary for each party's voters is to pick a candidate who can also win over this broad coalition. 
Charlotte, we're going to be talking a fair bit about the candidates on both sides in this episode because they are a colourful cast. But before that, let's look at some of the sort of macro forces at play here. I mean, Joe Biden's approval rating nationally is pretty low. It's in the low 40s. It's down where Donald Trump's was for much of his presidency. But if you look at the polls in Pennsylvania, and this comes with some caveats about looking at individual polls versus average and how statewide pollings can be less high quality than national polls. If you look at the polls in Pennsylvania, his approval rating seems even worse. The most recent poll from Franklin and Marshall College had just 33% of voters giving Joe Biden positive reviews for his job performance so far. This is a pretty terrible environment for Democrats to be running in. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. One thing that you always see when people are trying to, it's really in the general that you see it, but when you have an unpopular president is that their opponent will add a hyphen uh, to every policy. They'll say, you know, the failed Biden-Fetterman agenda or the failed Biden, you know, name your local candidate agenda to try to yoke the local person to the unpopular president. But I think that you really see this. I was amused to look at the endorsements for some of the Democrats because, of course, Republicans are falling over themselves to win President Trump's endorsement. But when you see for Fetterman, who right now is leading on the Democratic side, you have his list of people that's, you know, the Adams County Commissioner or the mayor of Braddock. Uh, You might have a congressman or two, but it may be that the president doesn't want to pick a horse. It might be that there's no really charismatic leader that uh, that a Democrat needs at the moment to win a primary um, because there's not really a clear star right now nationally on the Democratic side. And so I think that you see that interestingly playing out in the endorsements. And Idris, whenever elections come around in America, there's always a debate between people who think that the quality of the candidate is all important versus people who think that other factors like the state of the economy, the president's approval rating are really all you need to know about the race. I suspect the answer is that both are important. Do you agree or are you more of a sort of big forces person or a people person when it comes to deciding what's really important in these races? Yeah, I, I think the answer is both. I think the fundamentals set the baseline expectation. So, you know, Biden won by about four points last time. Uh, his approval rating has sunk quite a lot. Uh, concerns about the economy are quite high. And there are other things as well. Um, Republicans are currently leading the generic congressional ballot, which is this measure of who do you want to be your next representative. Obviously, individual candidates matter. You can put up a particularly bad candidate and as a result, um, lose races that you should win. So the candidates matter, but um, you know you need a particularly bad candidate to overcome the sort of already bad environment for Democrats. Okay, well, we're going to spend the rest of the episode digging into the primary fights on both sides. We're going to start with the Democrats in a moment. But first, if you like Checks and Balance, you really should be an Economist subscriber because there's so much great stuff we do that you're missing out on at the moment if you're not. We produce lots of great journalism every week from correspondents based all over the world. And if you subscribe, you'll get access to all of it. Charlotte, what did you particularly like from this week? You know, we always talk about Shashank, but he's just so good. And he did this great package on Russia's military, and I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. I really enjoyed our colleague Don Wineland wrote a piece about what it's like being locked down in Shanghai for, I think, 47, 48 days consecutively now. He wrote a piece about that for us, which featured drones that go around making announcements, telling residents of Shanghai to, and I quote, suppress your soul's urge to freedom. It sounds really grim, but it's an excellent piece. 
Anyway, if you're an Economist subscriber, you get to read all of that good stuff. James's Lex on Kevin McCarthy is also very, very good this week. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. First up, we're going to be talking about the Democratic Senate primary. There are three main candidates on the Democratic side. John Fetterman, the state's lieutenant governor, has probably got an insurmountable lead in the polls. His main rival is Connor Lamb, a congressman from Western Pennsylvania. State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta is comfortably in third. Our colleague James Bennett went to the first televised debate between the three last week in Harrisburg. What was striking to me about the debate was you had three Democratic candidates competing in the primary there, each of whom has been thought to represent a very different kind of politics. Malcolm Kenyatta from Philadelphia is as seen as the most progressive candidate in the race. Connor Lamb is a congressman from Pittsburgh who's won three times in a pretty red district and is regarded as a right-of-center Democrat. And John Fetterman, who's the lieutenant governor, is seen as sort of a populist Democrat with working class appeal. All of them were running towards the center, though, and in policy terms were pretty hard to distinguish. And John Fetterman is no Dr. Oz in celebrity terms, but he's about the closest thing the Democrats have to a celebrity in this race. What do you make of him and his political leanings, which seem to have changed quite a bit? Um, They do seem to have changed quite a bit. He uh, has been identified publicly forever as uh, for many years as a progressive. He told CNN the other day that he wouldn't really categorize himself as a progressive, uh, which came as a surprise, I think, to some of his supporters. He's presents as an extremely unconventional politician and an unconventional Democrat. He has an unusual story and he's physically an unconventional candidate. He stands six foot eight. He's bald. He has a um, a goatee that's more like a little billy goat's beard uh, hanging down from his chin. He uh, makes a point of never wearing suits or as rarely as he possibly can. He tends to appear in all kinds of weather, even in the snow in shorts and Carhartt outerwear. And he's very much cultivated a, an image of, of a man of the people. He was the mayor um, for 13 years of a tiny suburb of Pittsburgh called Braddock. There's a lot of great towns in Pennsylvania that feel like their community's best days were a generation ago. No one deserves to be abandoned. All these communities deserve to be helped. Which uh, a very down on its heels community that was eviscerated really by the collapse of the steel industry. You know, his his own roots are not necessarily uh, those of a man of the people. He's Harvard educated himself. He went to the Kennedy School. He's the son of an insurance executive who actually subsidized his lifestyle because you don't make much money as the mayor of Braddock. But again, he did walk the walk. He was in the community for many years and remains in that community. James, one of the things that came up in the debate the other night was this incident in 2013 with Mr. Fetterman and his shotgun. How big of a problem is that for him? And what, as far as you can tell, actually happened there? You know, what we know about what happened is that um, Fetterman was then the mayor of Braddock. He says he heard gunshots. He took his gun. He describes himself as being in charge of the tiny police force there um, and saw a man running he thought from the scene, and he detained him with his shotgun. Fetterman denies having pointed the shotgun at him. The details there are unclear. The man turned out to be an unarmed jogger, and he was black. 
Fetterman says he did not know what the race of the man was when he detained him and that it wasn't an incident of profiling. It's it, it's something that has dogged him um, and is dogging him through this race. Now, is it a political problem for him? It doesn't seem to be slowing him down in the primary. Uh, and I'm not sure it's something that a Republican would be able to effectively use against him in a general election. James, tell me what you make of Connor Lamb. You've written that he's a candidate who looks like he's assembled from a centrist toolkit, which sounds pretty great to me. But somehow the whole is less than the sum of the parts. Connor Lamb just looks like a senator from central casting. Um, he's a former Marine. He's a former prosecutor. He's got the full head of hair and not a, a hair of it is out of place. And he speaks in complete paragraphs. The Senate seat belongs to our voters. It doesn't belong to any pollster. So as far as I know, no votes have been cast yet. The score is 0-0. Zero, zero. And all I'm asking anybody that's watching this debate tonight is give me a chance. He's been in Congress for three terms and um, understands the legislative process. And boy, he can talk you through it. You know, we've been in change election after change election, as you know very well, for the last many cycles. And I think people We'll probably look at Connor Lamb and they don't see somebody who represents or appears to represent a real change. And James, covering this race, you spotted what you think is a shift, which sounds really interesting to me. I mean, if we went back and looked at the Democratic presidential primary from 2020, you know, the contest there was all about who had the biggest Green New Deal. This contest seems much more about electability, much less about policy and much more about how can we win over you know, wavering voters or even you know, perhaps even some Republican voters who might be disenchanted with Donald Trump. That's quite a big change. And it also tells you quite a lot about sort of where the Democratic Party thinks it's at. That's what's really striking to me here, John. And I just think it's also a recognition that a lot of the policy positions that Democrats found themselves taking um, over the last couple of years simply aren't popular um, <laughs> with most voters. These guys are not talking about abolishing the police. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are both experiencing terrible crime waves. Crime is a huge issue in this campaign. Murders have spiked in both cities. And I think you've got on the Democratic side, you know, candidates that are being truly sensitive to the concerns of their voters and responding to those. And they're very focused on issues of gun violence. They're focused on pocketbook questions, inflation, um, and healthcare spending. And they're not, unlike the Republicans, they're not looking to push cultural issues that were actually hot buttons for the left pretty recently. Charlotte, what do you make of John Fetterman, the front runner? I mean, in 2020, he was a Bernie Sanders supporter in the uh, presidential primary. He's now saying that he's not a progressive. In the debate, I think he was given a chance to take a position on immigration that might have pleased progressives, and he turned it down. I mean, he looks like somebody who's trying to say, actually, I'm more of a centrist than, than you might think. Do you find that persuasive? What do you make of his political appeal generally? It seems to me like he's just trying to downplay policy to quite a large extent. I mean, if you look at what he claims to stand for via just his campaign website, it's kind of standard Democratic stuff. So he wouldn't outline an enormous Green New Deal, but he wants to accelerate the 
clean energy transition. He's pro-union. He talks about creating union jobs. He supports a minimum wage of at least $15 an hour. He talks about health care as a fundamental right. But it's kind of vague, and I think that that's not that surprising. I think that people start having their eyes glaze over when they start being presented with long policy plans. But also, to James's point, this is really more about the person than about specific policies. I have to say, I find it really striking that you can have someone who is this far ahead in the polls within a Democratic primary just two years after the wave of Black Lives Matter protests who has this incident in his past when he drew a gun on a black man jogging. I I don't have a view of whether he's correct or incorrect that he didn't know whether the person that he drew a gun on and that he tried to detain, that he didn't know he was black. I think the argument is that he was covered up and bundled up and Fetterman couldn't see him. So I don't have a view on whether that's correct or not. But just the fact that this scandal exists and he's this far ahead in the polls to me shows how far the Democrats have swung from when they were talking about defunding the police to where they are now. I think that that faction of the Democratic Party was always a fairly small minority, and they clearly had the political momentum in 2020. But the majority of Democratic voters are probably above the age of 50, and in Pennsylvania, most of them are white. And one, it's a group that's not on Twitter, but two, it's a group that Democrats um, are really going to have to win over. Um, what's become apparent uh, from the last few years in American politics is how much Democrats are struggling with working class voters who didn't get college degrees, such that, um, you know, among white suburbanites, they've improved. But also you see now among Hispanic and African-American voters, um, they're also losing ground. And it's it's entirely concentrated among people who haven't gone to college. And so there's a real disconnect, which uh, someone like Fetterman, you know, ideally could ameliorate. Um, and in Ohio, which I guess we will look at later, someone like Tim Ryan, who's probably going to be the Senate nominee, might be their best chance of, of getting through to that population. But it's it's part of this national trend that I think is quite concerning for Democrats. The candidate who's in second place at the moment, Connor Lamb, what do you guys make of him? Because his appeal really is that he won in a Republican district, right? Albeit maybe in a national environment that was better for Democrats than, than for this one. So his pitch is, I can win in bits of Pennsylvania where John Fetterman can't win. Do you find that persuasive? To James Bennett's point, I always think that these paint-by-number candidates where they seem to really precisely fit a mold, you find that often they don't actually perform that well in in the election. I mean, the polling is pretty clear that Connor Lamb, despite all of his many attributes on paper, that he, he doesn't seem to be winning the hearts and minds of Pennsylvanians. So I'm not sure what would change that in the next few weeks. When you asked me what I thought of Connor Lamb, the two words that popped in my head were generic Democrat and then nothing else came. So I don't, I don't. Have... I, I have to say, I'm worried if John Fetter, if Fetterman wins, are we going to see a rash of short wearing Democrats across the country? Because I feel like that would be alarming. But John Fasman already wears a lot of Carhartt um, outerwear. So, so I think he. Carhartts are fine. He's... I'm just anti shorts. Oh, anti shorts. No, that's fair enough. Free the knee. <laughs> Well, the Democratic Senate primary is a fairly tame affair compared with what's going on on the Republican side. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the candidates who are vying to be the Republican nominee for the Senate.
On the GOP side, it's a fight between Dr. Mehmet Oz, a TV celebrity with very little political experience, and David McCormick, a hedge fund manager who worked in the George W. Bush administration. Conservative commentator Cathy Barnett has been in a distant third, but it's edging a bit closer. Christopher Nicholas is a veteran Republican political consultant based in Pennsylvania. I asked him what it takes for Republicans to win in the state. The best thing for Republicans is to have is to have a nominee be thought of in Western PA as not quite conservative enough and be thought of in Southeastern PA in the Philadelphia suburbs as perhaps being a bit too conservative. And then you've kind of found the correct perch from which to try and win statewide. But I think most people understand that, look, uh, Trump won this state by 44,000 and change in 2016. In 2020, Biden won it by 80,000 and change. That's a 120,000 vote swing, which may seem like a lot, but not in a state with more than 7 million registered voters. Let's talk about the who can win part on the Republican side. What do you make of the two front runners in the race, Mehmet Oz, better known as Dr. Oz to many of our listeners, and, and David McCormick? Well, they're both very accomplished men, although their accomplishments come in in very different fields. Dr. Oz is in medicine and uh, TV slash celebrity, and Mr. McCormick in the armed forces. He is a graduate of of West Point, served honorably overseas in in action, and then was very successful in both an internet 1.0 business in Pittsburgh, and then in the big investment hedge fund that he's run for a while. You know, both McCormick and Oz are worth more than $100 million each. So that has really skyrocketed the spending in the state. It's why folks like you over in jolly old England are calling people like me in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and chatting about this race, right? So we have seen levels of spending here that you would not even see in the general election. The Senate race, with its prolific spending uh, and two large personalities, and now the Trump endorsement, has really uh, taken the forefront here. And it does seem that the candidates on the right are competing to be the most MAGA and the sort of America firstest candidate. Dr. Oz has Donald Trump's endorsement. Ought that to seal the deal or does that actually carry less weight than you might think? Well, I said when the endorsement came down a couple of weeks ago that I thought it had uh, would have less impact now than it might have had in February because the McCormick campaign has been able to, I think, successfully uh, bring out some contradictions in Dr. Oz's past political statements. Because let's face it, he was not a politician running for U.S. Senate when he was doing all those TV shows and all those other things. And the Oz campaign has been successful in bringing out some of the inconsistencies uh, from the McCormick candidacy as well. Dave shares my values. Cash money and getting paid, particularly from China. Even after they gave us COVID. (laughs) Let's go China! Let's go China! So there was, uh, I think, a noticeable amount of what we call pushback here from grassroots Republicans about how did Donald Trump end up endorsing Dr. Oz because a lot of Republicans don't think the guy is a conservative because he's had comments on guns and abortion and other issues that have been kind of all over the map. Senator Clinton, one of the smartest people I've ever met. Dr. Fauci is too, but he's a very disciplined leader. He's a wonderful scientist. We need to work with China. 
and I love working in China. Challenging your beliefs about what it means to be male or female. How do we keep guns out of the world? When you have like 45% undecided, which we had then, it, it, it's just, you know, it's just this huge blob of undecided. I'm like, I don't know, we've had all this spending. I thought we'd have fewer than 40 some percent undecided. Uh, I, I liken it to, you know, uh, <laughs> airplanes circling the runway. At some point, you have to land the plane and figure out who you're going to vote for. But people still know they have some time. Idris, Dr. Oz is pretty famous in America from his daytime TV show. But for the benefit of our listeners in Singapore, one of whom emailed me the other day, can you explain the Dr. Oz phenomenon? Well, you know, he, he he's a TV doctor who's actually quite accomplished personally, but is most famous for his hours spent on daytime television in which, you know, he would hawk various cures for weight loss and, and these sorts of things. And calm, bedside, TV, manner, whatever you want to call it, um, has a lot of name ID, uh, much more than uh, Dave McCormick does. But uh, I will admit that I haven't watched too much of his uh, of his performance. Well, in preparation for the podcast, Harriet, our producer, sent me some clips, one of which was Dr. Oz talking about the benefits of dessert hummus. So this is chocolate-flavoured hummus or vanilla-flavoured hummus. So, Oh, that is terrible. Just so you know, Idris has this expression of complete disgust and it's disdain. Revulsion. It's chocolate, chickpeas, and sesame paste. <laughs> it's, what all, are you doing? it's all kinds of wrong. Why? Why would you do that? This guy should be disqualified. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately on those grounds. Dr. Oz's candidacy also has something of the kind of America in 2022 about it, right? Or at least the Republican Party. I mean, politically, he's all over the map. He's not a politician. And so he's taken a, a bit like Donald Trump prior to 2016. He'd taken a whole load of positions that are, you know, traditionally classified as liberal on things like guns and other issues like that. But his celebrity and the fact that he's just an incredibly practiced talker on live TV seems to buy him a kind of free pass somehow. Yeah, I love that Trump, in giving his endorsement, said that he had known him for many years through his television show. So he's acknowledging that he doesn't actually know Dr. Oz, but he was talking about how he has lived with us through the screen and has always been popular and respected. So I think that that's a pretty clear indication of the times. But Yeah, I'd recommend that everyone watch Dr. Oz's attack ads on David McCormick, which make fun of him being a finance bro and are really genuinely amusing. I think I would watch that ad at least half a dozen times and still find it funny. But I think more notable than Dr. Oz, frankly, for me, is David McCormick, who ran this big hedge fund out of Connecticut and really chased Donald Trump's uh, endorsement hard. He was working for it. In contrast, Glenn Youngkin, who won the governor's race in Virginia last year, Trump endorsed him, but he didn't ever really try to totally embrace Trump, in part because it was closer to Trump's loss, right? Trump had just lost to Biden. But he kind of wanted to win over Trump voters without yoking himself to Trump that closely. And both David McCormick and Dr. Oz really seem to want to just be as closely affiliated as possible with the former president. And David McCormick has these different ideas for how to compete with China, including sanctioning China for trafficking fentanyl and seeking reparations for COVID, the latter being, I think, particularly 
extreme. I'm I'm struck by the extent that even someone like David McCormick, who has really not um, hitherto been a fire-breathing MAGA guy, the degree to which he feels that becoming that is essential to his victory, I thought was notable. Yeah, that tells you something about Donald Trump's continued control of the Republican Party, doesn't it? And it's also part of this interesting phenomenon of men who've made it very, very rich in finance. So hedge funds, in the case of David McCormack, private equity, in the case of Glenn Youngkin, running on a mega platform that is pretty anti-trade, you know, America first, somewhat isolationist, and also claiming to stand for the left behind of America. It's quite an odd phenomenon, but it's quite widespread in the Republican Party now, Idris. Yeah, I think people have recognized that that is the path to electoral success. So you see, I think, significant reinventions um, and suddenly developed principles and convictions that uh, there wasn't much evidence for. You see that with Dave McCormick. You see it with J.D. Vance in Ohio. You see it with with really all the candidates who are running for the Republican primaries all, all throughout the country. The Trump endorsement is something that everyone is coveting. Even if they don't get it, they are keen to make sure that they are not uh, annoying the president such that he attacks them directly. Um, you know, McCormick, even though he didn't get the endorsement, is still hewing as closely to Trump's line as he possibly can because that's that's the path forward for them. There's a great graph that we, The Economist ran recently that showed Pennsylvania voters' intentions. And the graph for the line for Dr. Oz looks like a smiley face where it's sloping down and then he gets the Trump endorsement and just curves back up. So there's a reason why Republicans are doing this. There was a really good um, Bloomberg profile of, of Dave McCormick. I don't know if you read that one. The At the end of the article, the interviewer asks him, so was the 2020 election stolen? And he just keeps dissembling. He can't give a straight answer because he's a pretty smart guy. I'm sure he knows that there's no evidence for fraud in in Pennsylvania, but he can't bring himself to say it because he knows that if he does say it, he's not he's going to piss Trump off and he's going to lose. And like that's brief moment is, I think, an encapsulation of what the Republican Party is right now. So accepting Donald Trump's narrative of 2020 that he was in fact the rightful winner of that election is a litmus test on the right. There are the usual litmus tests around guns and abortion. And also David McCormick has been talking a lot about, uh, you know, elect me to beat back woke culture. You know, I'm anti-woke. That's also something where there's a lot of energy on the right at the moment. Yeah, I think that we talked after the 2020 election, uh, right in 2021, about how if Republicans could make their electoral chances hinge on anti-wokeness and the legitimacy of the 2020 election, then they would have pulled off a real coup. It was completely lacking in substance, right? And it's just on this these issues that uh, get people angry. So I think that they've pulled it off. I, I don't think the Republicans have a positive political agenda. If I ask you, what do Republicans stand for? What do they want to do with the majority? I, I don't know that you, I have a clear answer. I don't know that anyone would. But what they do stand for is being against wokeness, against critical race theory, against Biden's handling of the economy, of crime, of inflation, right? You can name all the things that they're running against, but uh, there's no there's no positive political agenda once they're in power, I think. Well, that's true. And I have to say that I think that criticizing Biden on inflation is different than criticizing CRT as something that's going to take over America. And I know we're going to talk about CRT more on a critical race theory on a future episode. But I think there is a legitimate debate to be had about the administration's handling of inflation and, and and what America can do more broadly, given the extremity of inflation and then 
the knock-on effects as interest rates start to rise quickly. I think that that is a substantive political debate to be had. But I'm I'm struck by the degree to which a lot of this just continues to be backward looking at something that is completely bogus, i.e. whether the 2020 election was a fraud. I mean, the fact that that still is taking up this much amount of airtime within the Republican Party is pretty amazing. And And people who believe it might be secretaries of state and governors, and they might be in the position of certifying or not certifying the 2024 presidential election. This stuff is scary, I think. It is indeed pretty scary. And we're going to be checking back on Pennsylvania from time to time between now and the midterms to see how this race develops. Idris and Charlotte, thank you for your thoughts. But before I let you go, I have a quiz. Charlotte, your respite from the quiz, which lasted a week when you had the questions and the answers in front of you is over. So I'm afraid you're back to your usual position. Very sad. The Economist first wrote about Pennsylvania in September 1843 in one of our earliest issues. The Economist was, of course, founded in 1843. In a note about, quote, commercial intercourse, between the UK and the US, we wrote that an embryo manufacturing system was springing up in places such as Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania. Question one. Earlier, I mentioned that Pennsylvania has voted for the winner in all but two presidential elections in the past 50 years. Can you name those two elections when the state backed the wrong horse? Uh, If you want a clue, they were consecutive elections. I think Gore... In 2000, and maybe 2004, they went for Kerry. Is the right answer, Idris? 2000 and 2004. That's impressive. Good. Well done. It was. It was guess. That was good. But you don't have to show you're working on this quiz. Pennsylvania <laughs> picked Al Gore and John Kerry over George W. Bush both times. Question two: Can you name the state that's voted for the winning presidential candidate most often? In the 28 elections since it was admitted to the United States in 1912. It's Ohio, right? But 1912. Admitted in 1912, I think. Yeah, exactly. The only times it's voted for the person who would not go on to win the presidency was when Gerald Ford was running in 1976, Al Gore in 2000, and Hillary Clinton in 2016. So otherwise, it has a perfect record, apart from those three, but only going back to 1912. So relatively recent state in the union. Um, I'm trying to think of Western swing states. Yeah. They're not; they don't really exist. Could be kind of. I'm, I'm, could be it, Colorado. Yeah, that's a good guess. Colorado. That sounds like a good guess. You're in the right sort of neighborhood. I have to say, guys. Nevada. I don't know. Idris, you go for Colorado. That's, that sounds like a trap, but sure. <laughs> um, you're both close. New Mexico, in fact, was admitted in 1912. Interesting. And is swingier than I thought it was. I think of it as fairly solidly democratic, but that's not in fact the case. Yeah, it has two two democratic senators, doesn't mm. it? And a democratic governor. Democratic governor, yeah. exactly. On the presidential level, it's it's not as blue as you might think. Huh. Well, I'm impressed by your Gore Carey answer, Idris. Yes, that you get it's points for that, that, Idris. Thanks. One point. <laughs> um, I think we'll say two. Better than zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you also to Harriet Noble, Stevie Hertz, and Nico Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. A couple of days ago, I mentioned this already, I received an email from a listener in Singapore who listens to the podcast on a Saturday with her dad as they jog around a jungly park. 
and then they discuss the podcast afterwards. So, Emily, thank you for sending the pictures in of where you listen to the podcast. If anyone else wants to email us any pictures of where they listen to Checks and Balance, then podcasts at economist.com is the address for that. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. I'm actually wearing a T-shirt that says that today because John Fasman sent it to me for my birthday. So I feel like this is the beginnings of some Checks and Balance merchandise. Maybe we should do the kind of scented candles that smell like Charlotte's socks or something next. (laughs) Very, very popular. So stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.